So I hope everyone had a great weekend. Uh, I know that I did. I traveled a bit. I went to my favorite city in the world, New York City, and I just got back late last night. Uh, So if I say something a little bit unedited or something off, just know that I'm a little bit tired, Uh, but I'm so excited to be here. There was a little bit of bad news last night, though, when I was, you know, catching up on some emails, when I was checking uh, important, you know, websites like ESPN. I noticed that my beloved Cougs, they didn't do so hot. Uh, They lost last night, or on uh, Friday, but then there was good news that something happened yesterday, was that the Huskies also lost, so that kind of made up for it. I feel a lot better, so uh, a lot of waves of emotion uh, over this weekend, Uh, and, and what I'm really excited for is that we're continuing this sermon series called Sustainable Faith. And if you were here last week, we saw a video of uh, Pastor Richard. He spoke to all six locations about the purpose of why we're starting this new six-week series on sustainable faith. And it's this whole idea that just like a marathon, just like exercise, just like our eating habits, uh, there's this idea of sustainability that's really important. That is something that we have to keep doing and being very intentional about really for our whole life. And it's so easy to be burned out. It's so easy to be jaded, so easy to be skeptical, so easy to walk away that what it requires us to, what is required is of us to understand practical ways on sustaining the, the love that we have for Christ, our journey in our faith, and our understanding of God. And so each week we'll be talking about something very specific. And so this week, uh, week two, uh, we're, we're talking about the importance of reading scripture, uh, of encountering God through God's word in Revelation. And, and I'll just say this, as we talk about these spiritual disciplines, uh, I have a, kind of a hard time not only talking about it, but teaching on it because of my own experiences. And so today as we talk about uh, the importance of scripture, the thing that I had to battle was thinking about my own upbringing in my own childhood. I, I grew up in a very conservative and a very traditional uh, rule-following church, which as I look back, I'm very thankful for that experience. Uh, but I remember th- always learning that if you want to be a good Christian, if you love God, then you will have uh, the perennial, the peripheral quiet time. And if you've grown up in the church, you know exactly what that is. It's this time set aside uh, each day, and for some reason, the way I was taught was that the earlier you wake up to read the Bible, the holier, holier you are. And, and so I remember as a junior high kid being really frustrated at that because I'd wake up, set my alarm, you know, before school, and I would, you know, read my Bible because my youth pastor said that if you are a good Christian, then you will read the Bible in the mornings. And so I'd wake up and I'd do just that. Uh, and he would say, not only would you do it in the mornings, but you'd do it for 30 minutes. 30 minutes every day. I said, okay, I got it. I want to be a good Christian. Uh, I love God. And so I'd wake up. And then 30 minutes earlier. And I remember opening my book. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to go. I didn't really even understand the things that I was reading. I just knew I had to do it if I wanted to be a good Christian. And so I remember sitting there, I remember this so vividly, that I looked at the clock and I said, okay, 30 minutes. i got to last 30 minutes. Uh, you know, 15-minute marker goes by and I'm like, all right, 
you know, 10 more minutes, I'm almost done. Five more minutes, you know, 25 minutes, and I'm like suffering here because I want to be done so bad. And yet I force myself to just keep reading and reading until that five minutes was up and 30 minutes was complete, and I'd finally go to school and I'd feel like I'd check that off. And so oftentimes I feel weird or it's hard for me to teach on the importance of these spiritual practices because the last thing I want to do is teach another sense of legalism. See, my role this morning is not to say, hey, if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to love God and to demonstrate your love for God, you have to read the Bible X amount every day. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want scripture to be uh, something that we feel like we're ob- obligated to do or something that's forced on us because the pastor said so. And rather, I want us to understand that there's beauty and there's truth and there's transformative uh, things here that God reveals to us through scripture. Because I remember even as a middle school kid, there was this one side where I would say, okay, if I love God and if I want to grow in my faith, I have to read the Bible, that's it, boom. And then as years went on, that wasn't very sustainable. Me waking up 30 minutes earlier wasn't very sustainable. Me sitting here hoping that 10 minutes would hurry up because I'm so bitter and so annoyed that I have to do this, that wasn't very sustainable. And then as I got into high school and even college, there was this new phenomenon when it came to devotion life and this Christian subculture was that, you know what, you don't have to read the Bible to know God. You can go on nature walks. You can hang out with friends. Sure, you can go to church and it'll have him there. And you can see the beauty of the nature. You go on hikes and go backpacking. You can travel the world. You don't need the Bible. You just have to do that. And so, you know what? I said, okay, if I have to choose one, I'm going to ditch the waking up 30 minutes early, and I'm going to go on nature walks to hear and listen for God. And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to go extra further and say, you know what? I can learn from God on my couch, watching TV. And then go to movies and go to show. And now here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can't do that. In fact, I love the outdoors. I love going hiking. I love going backpacking. And almost every single time that I do, I do meet with God. And God does reveal something about God's self when I'm hiking and seeing the beauty and the vastness of nature and the ocean. But yet, if that's the only thing we count on, to be revealed, to understand something about God, then there's something missing that we would have got on the other side. And so my point is this, too much on this side is not sustainable. Too much on this side is also not sustainable. So the question is, what does it look like to have this sustainable faith when it comes to this discipline of encountering God through the scriptures? Because the problem is this, in either sense, whether we set this legalistic rule saying we have to do this, we have to, we have to read X amount for this many days, for this many minutes, versus not doing it all and experiencing God through nature or walks or whatever it is, we end up drifting away from that. And that's kind of my first point is there, as humans, our natural human condition is for us to drift and in Hebrews, no wonder it says in Hebrews chapter one or chapter two, verse one, it says, 
We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Therefore, we must pay the most careful attention uh, so we do, from what we have heard so we do not drift away. And for those of us that have been Christian for a long time, we know what it feels like to have drifted a bit. So we enter into this faith, and we don't really know what we're getting ourselves into. I know for myself that was the case for me. And we try so hard uh, to grow our relationship and to know who God is, to know what God wants from us, and for us to be faithful and obedient. We try so hard, at least for myself, I landed here. And this whole legalistic aspect, I have to read, I have to do this with the Bible, otherwise I won't be a good Christian. And that is just not sustainable. So what happens when something isn't sustainable? What I did was I drifted. Okay, well, I don't have to read the Bible every day, okay? Well, I don't have to read X amount of minutes, okay? Well, I can find God through other sources and other places. Yes, that's true. And then slowly we drift, and we drift even further and further away. And maybe for you it's not about your understanding of reading Scripture, but uh, for a lot of us we've encountered God, we've experienced, we've accepted, a lot of us we, we remember to the T the day that we began our relationship with God, and we've experienced moments in our lives where we've abandoned that. And we've drifted from our faith. And maybe it's not through these big incidents in our lives, but even small, minute ones, where it's subtle ways where we start drifting in our relationship with God. Maybe it's subtle. Maybe it's slowly. Maybe it's big. Maybe it's a big incident that you had. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a death. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a job, career, family, I don't know what it is, but there's areas in our lives that causes us, if we're not firmly rooted in our faith, that causes us to drift. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, one of the classes that I had to take at the end from my ordination was uh, chaplaincy at a hospital. Uh, and, and it was a major trauma center in the Los Angeles area. Uh, and the, the units that I had to oversee uh, was the NICU, the ICU, and oncology. And I remember day in, day out, I would go to work as a chaplain. And I would hear stories after stories of, of people, how they ended up in the hospital. And oftentimes I would see people die and get sick. And this was every single day of my life for, that, for four months. And you want to talk about your faith being challenged. That was it for me. And the last straw for me was going into the ICU, uh, and, or actually oncology, and seeing a two-year-old being diagnosed with a rare tumor, a brain tumor, and eventually dying. And, and I had to go home that day, and I'll be honest with you, I'm supposed to be in my last year of seminary, I'm pursuing ordination, uh, and I'm meeting people, talking about my faith, answering questions, and yet I was having a, a spiritual crisis of my own. 
And, and now this sermon today isn't talking about why bad things happen to good people, though that is a question that we need to wrestle with. Uh, but for me, the understanding was there are times in my life where my faith is just rocked. And for all of us, we have those experiences. Maybe it's not at the hospital or, or maybe it's in your living room or maybe it's at your job in relationship. I don't know what it is. But unless our lives are rooted in the foundation of who God is. And last week, Pastor Richard talked about uh, Jesus being like a seed and for us to have this fertile soil for this seed to grow. And if we're not doing that, there's little things that just kind of rock us. And that was my experience in the hospital, is that if my faith was ever tested, it was during that time. It was easy for me to be bitter. It was easy for me to be angry at the time and confused and to question God. What, really, are you here? God, do you actually care? God, God, what did this two-year-old child do to deserve this? And the answer is obviously nothing. And I remember for months I was wrestling. God, are you, is God even there? Am I even a Christian? If I, if I have these questions, and, and I'll be honest, it's oftentimes, for me, it was because I wasn't rooted in the scriptures. I wasn't being reminded of God's promises. I was forgetting about God's unconditional love. Now, do I have answers for all those questions? No, I don't. But I do know that when we have this fertile soil, for God to be in and manifest God's self in us, that yes, hard times happen. Yes, challenging times. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we're angry. Yet, at the same time, we can still be rooted in the truth of how much God loves us, God is with us, God will never abandon us, and God walks alongside with us. Yet it's easy to forget without these constant reminders. Hey, we look at the story of kings, and it's kind of where we're going to talk and unpack just for a little bit, is that it's not a book that a lot of people read, but it's a very fascinating book in the Old Testament. First and Second Kings is a story about Israel's history from the time that David was king all the way to the very end when they were put into exile, Judah and Israel. And really the, the idea of First Kings and Second Kings is one big story about, not a very creative title, about kings of Israel. And I don't know if this surprises you or not, but majority of the kings in Israel were kind of bad apples. Uh, they were evil. They didn't do good in the sight of God. They didn't do good in the sight of the people and led the people astray. And so this whole time, the first and second kings is about these bad kings and God having to send prophets to help them change their ways and recognize what they were doing. And we're going to look at second kings chapter 21 or chapter 21 and 22, but let me just set this up for a little bit. There's years and years of bad kings, and then finally in chapter 20, this is around 7th century B.C., King Hezekiah enters into the picture. He was a good king. 
And after Hezekiah died, uh, his son uh, Solomon was king. And we all heard of Solomon. And Solomon started off as a good king. And then slowly as he started building his temple, as he started, you know, gaining wealth and recognition, he kind of let that get to his head. And he ultimately ended up abandoning the temple to worship God, and he brought in false God, married women from different places and, and different nations, and did everything essentially that the Torah, that the Old Testament told kings and Israel, Israelites not to do. And so slowly, as King Solomon was drifting away, that started impacting the kingdom. And after that, uh, it didn't stop there. The kings after that adopted the previous king's ways, and the nation of Israel started slowly but surely even more drifting and drifting and drifting further and further away. And then eventually in chapter 21, uh, there was this king named Manasseh. Manasseh was king and says that he was the most evil king in the history of Israel. In Manasseh, in chapter 21, verse 2, it says this. He did, this is talking about Manasseh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, following the abominable practices of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars of Baal, so false gods, cults, made a sacred pole as King Ahab of Israel had done, worshipped all of the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars, altars in the house of the Lord, uh, which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for all of the hosts of heavens in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And so essentially what Manasseh was doing was he was undoing everything that Hezekiah and all the other good kings did in the temple. He brought in false gods. He allowed practices of Baal, of Baal. And, and, and the most kind of evil thing that he's ever done is that he introduced child sacrifice. And so we can see this pattern, this progression. We're not going to go through all of First and Second Kings, but there's this progressions of slowly drifting and drifting and drifting away. You know, there was David who, was, who wasn't perfect. We know David. He wasn't a perfect man. But at the end of the day, he was considered a man after God's own heart. And after King David, there's other kings that came in, that came in, that started losing sight of who God was. And it says... And this story that the, the, book, uh, the, the book of the law was missing, it was gone. So essentially their Bible, their Torah, it, somewhere along the line of the, of the bad kings, the Bible, their Bible, the Torah was lost. And they never read it, it wasn't even a thing. Eventually it was so gone that people didn't even know where it was or had access to it. And so they would start slowly drifting and drifting and drifting away with the culmination at the very end with Manasseh. And then after Manasseh in chapter 22, Josiah comes in. And Josiah was a different king. He wanted to go back to the days of David. He wanted to make things right. He knew that what his father and his forefathers were doing uh, with the temple, with the people, with the worship of the false gods, with intermarriage, he knew that there was something wrong there. And so he wanted to undo and go back to where they drifted from. 
And so in chapter 22, verse 8 through 13, this is a really cool story. Listen to what happens. Uh, the high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So here's the deal. The temple was destroyed. It was gone. It was demolished. Uh, it was hijacked for false worship, uh, of, of, to worship false gods. And Josiah comes in, and in his attempt to say, all right, I want to go back to the way that my forefather David ran things around here. And so at the age of 18, he decided to do just that. He sent Hilkiah and Shaphan back to the destroyed temple and said, Hilkiah, Shaphan, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to the temple and start rebuilding. I want you to make sure that this temple that was originally to worship God turned into worshiping of Baal, of false gods. I want us to go back to worshiping God. So will you go back in there? Shaphan and Hilkiah, will you get rid of all the idols? Will you get rid of all the statues of the false gods and put in everything that can be used to worship the God of Israel? Okay. As they were doing that, they found something. Hilkiah goes to Shaphan and says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Josiah, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Shaphan the secretary informed the king, the priest Halkiah has given me a book. Shaphan then read it out loud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the priest Halkiah, Iakam, uh, uh, son of Shaphan, Akbar, son of uh, Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and the king's servant, Asiah, saying, Go inquire to the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah concerning the words of this book. So let me just paraphrase of what just happened here. Got the book. Uh, and uh, Saphan and Hilkiah says, hey, look, Josiah, King Josiah, you had us go and clean out the temple and, and the money and to give it to the right people. And guess what we found as we're doing that? Josiah says, what? He said, we found the book of the law, their Bible, the Torah. And here's what the Torah says. And throughout chapter 22 and even chapter 23, uh, they get an interpreter. And Josiah is saying, all right, interpreter, tell me what the book of the law says. Tell me what the Bible says. And as this interpreter was reading the Bible to Josiah, he was convicted. And he was saying, oh, my goodness, everything that we were doing, everything that my father and my forefather has done was antithetical, the complete opposite of what we're supposed to do. We weren't worshiping God. We were defiling God. And then he says he tore his clothes. So back then, that was a sign of, of grief, of lament. When someone died, when someone did wrong, uh, the person would tear their clothes. And so there was a strong sense, this overwhelming sense of conviction in King Josiah's heart. He realized that his people, not only his people, but himself, were not living according to the law, and he grieved. He grieved. There was a transformation in Josiah's heart to change things. And so, again, in chapter 22 and chapter 23, as you read on, based off of what he discovered through the revelation of the scriptures that were lost but now found, it changed his life. 
And not only did it change his life, he changed the lives of others. He had people gathered all around so they can, sit, so they can also hear and read the word of God. There was something in the scriptures that had been lost and now been found that was life-changing for the community. And so now they knew what to do and how to live. They realized that the life that they were living was not in accordance to what God wanted and how they were created. And so again, even in their own homes, in their own lives, in the temples, in the churches and synagogues, they would remove all the false idols because now they had good revelation that they responded to. See, the point is this, all transformation, I would say all transformation is the result of revelation. The reason why we're transformed, or, and that's just a fancy way of why we decide to do one thing or over another, is because of revelation. And, and if that's the case, then better revelation leads to better transformation, right? I mean, this goes thing in our lives, that when we learn something, when something is revealed to us, we now have a decision. <clears throat> and if it's better revelation, then it's a better decision that we're going to make. And we, we encounter revelations all the time, big or small. Uh, the first thing I think about when I think of revelations uh, are diet fads. You don't have to raise your hand, but a lot of us, we've, we've all been a part of different type of diet plans, right? But the problem with diet plans is that Facts tend to change all the time. And so based on the revelation that we receive, we, do, we decide to transform one way or another. And sometimes we don't transform necessarily for the best. I mean, think about some of the diet plans that we've had in the course of history, even in the short history. Uh, don't eat fats. It's bad for you. Well, now there's better revelation. Now eat fats. Some of it is actually good for you. Don't eat meat, which used to be some of the revelation. Uh, and now it's, uh, now eat a lot of meat because you need the protein. Uh, eat lots of grains used to be kind of a thing back in the day. Now it says don't eat any grains. I mean, revelations tend to change all the time that causes us to transform in our daily lives. Well, I mean, we see this. Drink, I'm guilty of this. Drink Diet Cokes because it's better for you than regular Coke. Well, now that there's studies, they're just as bad, if not worse. And then there's don't eat carbs because carbs are bad for you. And then there's something that says eat carbs, they're good for you. I'm going to believe that one <laughs> because I like carbs. The point is this, we encounter revelations all the time. And then we decide how we want to transform and sometimes a revelation that we buy into or that we hear, that we listen to, it's not always great. And if it's not always great, then the transformation that we have is not always great. Because the better the revelation, the better the transformation. And what Josiah understood was that the book of the law that he found contained the best revelation for his life. And from that best revelation that he received for him and his people, the outflow was the best transformation. 
Because in the lives of so much chaos and so much mess and so many voices of revelations, we have encounters of revelations every single, commercials, ads, magazines, books, radio stations, we have revelations all the time. Drink this, it's good for you. Dress like this, you'll feel better about yourself. Look like this, then life will be better. That's not a good revelation. And it doesn't lead to good transformation. And what Josiah is saying is that the, the meat, the goodness, the beauty, the truths that is revealed in Scripture leads and led him to transformation that was better than anything he and his community could ask for. In a sense, it was this idea that in a changing world, that this was his true north. See, there's this idea of uh, true north versus magnetic north. And for those of you that are engineers that are, you know, good with geography, you guys know what I'm talking about. I don't really know much about this except for this, is that there's a big difference between magnetic north and true north. So if you had a compass, and a lot of us, we have compasses, this is built right to our phone. And if I said, let's walk a journey on, hypothetically, to the North Pole. Let's just do that. Let's break out your compass. It says north. Let's go north to the North Pole. And if we solely depended on just that compass to get to the North Pole, more often than not, the likelihood of you actually hitting the North Pole is very far. You actually, you probably wouldn't. You'd be off. Uh, you'd be off X amount of distance because your compass would change and it would move around based on uh, the conditions of the earth. And so the difference between uh, that magnetic north and, and true north is a huge difference because true north never changes. If you were able to find true north, uh, you'd be able to hit the North Pole every single time. If you base yourself on a compass that used magnetic north, it would actually shift and it would change depending on the earth. And so you may or may not hit the North Pole. And oftentimes we see things in our lives and influences and voices from all over, from the social media, from media, from our friends, that oftentimes resembles a magnetic north. It changes all the time. We have revelations that changes all the time. We have revelations that are good, that are ugly, that are bad, uh, that are different all the time. And, and what Josiah is teaching us is that though in a world where there's so much mess and so much chaos and so many voices, there's one voice that is true north that will guide us into beauty, that will guide us into a better life, that will guide us into a better understanding of who God is. That will guide us into understanding how life was truly meant to live. And when Jesus in John 10.10 10 says, I have come to give you life, and not just regular life, but life to its abundance, that is the truth, and that is found in who Jesus is through the scriptures. And when we see our understanding of the importance of reading scripture, of being uh, just saturated in God's word as a journey into knowing who God is, that's when we move from legalism to a relationship. I don't do it because I feel like I have to, because I have to check a box off. 
I do it because I know that when I read the scriptures, I encounter the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. And in and through that is revealed to me a path to a life that God intends for me that leads to transformation. I mean, how many times have we have been through, a, let's say, a difficult time in life? And we read the scriptures, and there's always a psalm or there's a proverb that changes, uh, changes our hearts. And, you know, have you ever been angry, and you see the Bible, what it says about anger, it changes our hearts. You see what it says about how we treat the poor and how we treat the marginalized. Uh, when we read of God's heart and Jesus' ministry to the people, it should change our hearts. I love the song that we sang. It says, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. All I am for your kingdom's cause. And the reality is, we have to know what that is through the reading of the scriptures. Yes, God reveals himself in many different avenues through community. That's why we have uh, growth groups and, and connect groups. Yes, through the nature, God's creation. I, that's why I love hiking and backpacking through sports, through all those things. And I would really venture to say that the primary way that God reveals God's self to us is through the scriptures. And we read through it. We connect with God. We wrestle with it. We grapple with the truths in it to know how God wants to, live, wants to live in us and through us. You know, I talk about working out a lot because it's just my stress reliever. I just, that's what I do. Uh, I just like to go for a run. I like to uh, go work out. And there's some nights where I go into the gym and I don't want to do it. You know, I, I know some of you guys here, you can resonate with me. You go into the gym and you're like, oh, man, this was a good idea about an hour ago. And then you step inside the gym and you're like, uh, I think I'm done. Or I kind of want to go home. But there's times where I do it anyways. Not because I feel like I have to. Not because I feel like I have to, you know, to be the best human being. I have to check off this box of going to the gym. I do it because, yes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, heck, I don't even want to. But at the end of the day, I know that is good for me, it's for my health, I'll be more disciplined, I'll improve in, in X, you know, different ways. And so that's why I do it. And sometimes when it comes to scripture, that's what it feels like. Sometimes I encounter the Bible and I say, you know what, I don't, man, I'm so tired, or man, I have so much on my mind, or I'm so stressed out that I don't want to do it. But I do it because I know, not because I have to check a box off, but because there lies in here truths and beauty that transforms my life and enriches it because it compels me and causes me to draw closer with my creator God. And that's why we do it. That's why I do it. See, we're a people that drift. We can't just do nothing. Right? That goes for everything in life. We, if we don't exercise, something happens. If we don't eat healthy, if we don't invest properly, if we, don't, we can't just do nothing. 
in order to have sustainable faith, we have to do something. But it's not this where we sit in legalism, where we force ourselves to do something that we so don't want to. But it's also not this where we completely just ignore it. There's something else. And my encouragement and my challenge and my hope and my desire and my prayer for all of us, including myself, is that what changes this paradigm is this understanding that this is a journey. That in here contains authority for our lives, contains truths that is transforming. And because of that, in those encounters with God, that changes our lives. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Uh, and and as, as they do that, there's a few things I just want us to think about. You know, the, the question I want us to think about is, what, how do we encounter God? And, and, and there's no right or wrong answers necessarily, uh, but our relationship with God takes intentionality just like any other relationship. And in order for us to have a sustainable faith, the first practice we're talking about this week is engaging in the scriptures so that we don't drift away. I remember a few years ago, I was a youth pastor, and there was a, uh, I had a student, and his dad was a pilot. And he told me a really cool fact that he said that uh, for every one degree that the flight is off path, one degree per mile, he would miss his target uh, by 92.2 feet each mile. That one degree, one degree. And so he said if a flight went from uh, JFK, so New York City, to LA, where I was at the time, uh, and it was off just by one degree, they would have ended up 50 miles off target. 50 miles. That's a whole complete different city. And so know that in our lives, it's easy for us to drift away, especially, and I say this metaphorically, especially spiritually. For those of us that consider ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, it's so easy to slowly drift away. Just like the kings in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, generations and generations, they slowly drifted away from the truth. They drifted so far off that they didn't even know what the truth was until they encountered God through the, literally through the finding of the Bible. And they discovered truths in the Bible that changed their whole lives, that convicted them. And Josiah changed the way he lived, changed the way his people lived, his nation in the temple, and all of that according to the scripture. Because he was revealed, something, was, something new was revealed to him that transformed his life. So I invite us to enter into a time of meditation, of prayer, of silence. How have we drifted away? Where in our lives have we, have we drifted away? What causes us to drift away? 
Is it pride? Is it our own idolatry? Is it greed? And my encouragement to us is that we find ways practically, even this week, to engage in our relationship with God. And we'll, I'll send out some resources online. I'll put some stuff on our social media, uh, unless you have your own Bible plan. To engage in the scriptures that helps us uh, in, the, in the midst of so much chaos and so many voices to find our true north. That as we drift away, we find our true north to return to the life that God has for us. So maybe your prayer is saying, God, how have I drifted away? God, forgive me. God, help me to encounter you through your word. Sometimes I feel hypocritical saying this because I have a hard time doing this myself. the truth of the matter is God reveals God's self to us in many ways, primarily through the scriptures. We want to know God. We have to know the scriptures individually, collectively, corporately. So let's do that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the gift of your word. God, that this word of yours takes us on a journey. It's not legalism. It's not something we have to check off. It's something that we engage in because we know that it's life-changing. So God, give us of your grace. Give us of your mercy. Give us of your wisdom and discernment how to make sure that we can habitually be in your scriptures to know you and to know what you want from us and how to live the life that you've created us to live. We thank you. Give us discipline. Give us practice. And may we see that this changes our lives. In your name we pray.